I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I summarize and wrap up season three, drawing some implications and conclusions from this exploration of Paul's letter to the Romans. So I'm standing here in my kitchen looking out on a gorgeous sunny day, a very bright day outside, early spring day, but it's actually a little bit deceptive because it's not all that lovely outside. It's like 20 degrees, which is we're in the middle of this crazy cold snap here in West Michigan. I walked this morning very early uh, because I was up ridiculously early and it was like 13 degrees outside. I mean, it's like late March. What's the deal? I am ready for some warmth. This is just getting old. The cats are currently napping, which is nice and a little bit of a relief. Uh, a little bit earlier, I was kind of threw together an outline for this episode, and Freddie Mercury was climbing all over me, trying to curl up on the keyboard for a nap. He is he is the needy cat of the George and Freddie crew. Um. I was watching golf this weekend and uh, it was kind of funny. George kept leaping at the screen, trying to grab the ball as it went across the green. It was just, I was worried that he was going to scratch uh, the screen. But I have to say it was pretty funny. And uh, I posted a video of it to my Instagram if you want to check that out. Just to get a glimpse of the domestic drama that is unfolding here at the Gombas house on a daily basis. Uh, this here is the last episode of season three of this here podcast, and uh, my aim is just to wrap up Romans with just some final thoughts in this episode. Um, then I'm going to take a break for a couple weeks. I'm doing a little bit of traveling, and uh, I thought I would just take a break and think about where I'm going to go next. Um, I'm not really sure. If you've got any ideas, you're very welcome to email me of things that uh, you'd like to hear me talk about. Um, I have to say that my interests probably don't match everybody's. Um, and, and usually I go with whatever interests me, stuff that I'm chewing on and uh, stuff that I have thoughts about. There, there are loads of things that I don't have thoughts about. And uh, when, I, when I don't, I prefer not to sort of try to weigh in. Um, I like to listen to people who know what they're talking about. I like to l listen to people talk about things that they know about. And uh, I'm not so interested in hearing people talk about things that they don't know about. And I'm very uninterested in talking about myself, things that I don't know about. Very hesitant to weigh in on things like that. Um, but anyway, drop me a suggestion or two if you like. Uh, we're on the cusp of a very, well, we're in the middle of a very exciting sports season. Uh, the final four was just determined yesterday. The last two games were played and um, pretty exciting final four matchup. And uh, obviously there'll be a lot of anticipation building over this week uh, with um, a couple of sort, sort of storied basketball programs, uh, Kansas, North Carolina and Duke. And um, it's going to be, it'll be interesting. 
there'll be fun games to watch. This has been a pretty satisfying uh, NCAA tournament so far. At least I've been following the men's tournament. And um, it seems to have had like all the drama that you look for with uh, St. Peter's University going pretty deep, getting to uh, the Sweet 16 uh, before running into an absolute wall against North Carolina the other day. Um, but it's been fun to follow, something to watch while I'm waiting for uh, the blessed hope of baseball starting. Opening day is uh, a week from Thursday. That afternoon is completely blocked off because the Cubs are opening up at home uh, at 2.20 p.m. on Thursday. The rest of that day is completely blocked out. Uh, although that'll be kind of complicated. Uh, I'll be having to switch between that and the first round of the Masters. That week is also the Masters tournament, which is like the beginning of of all things hopeful and promising. Uh, the first golf major of the year. Very excited for that. Uh, the other day, we started watching a really fun show on HBO Max called Our Flag Means Death. It is such a blast. It's so great. Uh, it's produced by uh, Taika Watiti. He's the producer of it, and he also acts in it. He plays Blackbeard, and it is absolutely, absolutely hilarious. Uh, Taika Waititi did... He made Jojo's Rabbit a few years ago, which is a brilliant and beautiful and wonderful film. He uh, made the movie, and then he also played the Hitler character in it. So if you like that film, and if you liked uh, the movie and the series, What We Do in the Shadows, which is absolutely bananas and hilarious, um, then check out Our Flag Means Death. It is brilliant. It's totally fun. There's only one season of it out. And uh, we've been making our way through it. Have two more episodes to go. Um, it's always a bummer. It's, it's fun to binge watch shows, but it's a bummer when you see them coming to an end, when you discern that this is it, two more episodes, and then you got to wait for forever and you know, sort of lose track of where the drama goes from there. But anyway, check out Our Flag Means Death. We've been loving it. Uh, I just want to say that my friend Steve Watkins, who's um, for me been the most significant conversation partner over the last few decades and more, uh, Steve has a new podcast that you can check out on YouTube. It's called Operator Syndrome, which is a condition identified among operators in the elite special forces who endure traumatic experiences and and they have lifelong effects or their traumatic experiences have lasting effects on their physical, mental, and emotional health. Um, it's very easy to glorify and lionize special forces operators, but the effects on their bodies and minds have lasting and terrible effects for them and for their families. Um, Steve's been a, he had been a Navy SEAL and his friend Patrick uh, who had been an army ranger on that pat on that podcast uh they discuss all these kinds of things um in brief 30 minute episodes so check it out it's pretty interesting stuff you can just search operator syndrome on youtube and find it pretty easily um it's really stunning that there were just over 7000 combat deaths among um iraq and afghanistan uh, soldiers 
and over 114,000 suicides among veterans of those wars. So um, war has unspeakably tragic consequences, and uh, it, has, it takes a toll on people who operate in the special forces. And Steve and Patrick are just two veterans who are discussing the trauma that veterans endure. So um, they have a good time doing it. They relay crazy, funny stories, and they also talk about the serious after effects um, that are sort of gathered under the name Operator Syndrome. Check it out. It's great stuff. So this is the final episode of this season, the final episode on Romans. Um, I've had a lot of fun sort of studying Romans or journeying through it, talking through it a little bit. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, engaging with people who've written uh, perceptive questions or uh, challenging questions, uh, bringing up interesting topics or extending out things that I've said about what Paul's getting at in Romans. Uh, so thank you for all that. And I've just, this has been a blast. I thought I would take this episode to just sort of sum up a bunch of what's going on in the letter or just some random takeaways um, and implications after this study or journey or set of ruminations on Romans. First of all, I was thinking about this. Um, I hope this comes across rightly. But it seems to me that Romans is mo Romans is not most faithfully interpreted as a quote-unquote book of the Bible or a book in the New Testament. Um, I say that because when we refer to sort of documents that are collected in what we call Bibles, we tend to call them books, uh, which comes with a load of assumptions about how books are produced and why books are produced. We have to remember that this is a letter that Paul wrote to address a specific situation that had to do with the Roman network of house churches. We have to keep that in mind because when, whenever we interpret sort of portions of it or statements that Paul makes in this letter, um, we have to keep in mind that it's not kind of this work of abstracted theology. It's not just a book that Paul wrote. Um, he, he didn't just sort of sit down and think, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out some reflections on this topic. It's a pastoral letter written to solve a problem. And uh, it's very easy to read Romans as if it were sort of information about general spirituality or as if it were a work of theology, as we know theology, like abstract theology. Stanley Stowers, uh, who wrote a book on Romans back in the 90s, said something I thought was really striking. He said that as soon as Romans, this text that Paul wrote, this document that he wrote, as soon as Romans was bound together with Paul's other letters, and put in a large book that we call a Bible, it was already interpreted, or it was it already had sort of a cast to how we would read it. We could say that it was even already when we encounter it, it's misinterpreted. It just having it situated in our Bibles like that um, just distorts how we come at it. And this is why I've said before that whenever I study any text in, in Scripture, I will. Um, capture it electronically, put it into a Word document and print it out and take out all the paragraphs, um, sort of all the headings and all that kind of stuff. 
so that, so that I just have running text because I want to take out as much of the interpretive noise that is presented along with how how biblical texts are presented. It's it's a more sort of organic way of, of encountering any kind of a biblical text. Um, anything that I could do to just remember that this was originally produced as a letter written with a specific purpose for a specific audience, uh, because we can tend to generalize it and we can tend to read the text while forgetting what Paul was actually doing when he wrote it. So, my first point, remember that it's a letter. Um, secondly, Romans is not a text that has to do with salvation or, quote-unquote, how to get saved or anything like that. It was written to specific churches in Rome in the first century with a specific purpose of trying to unite the two factions that were divided as they fought over the sort of the proper mode uh, the proper mode of life that most faithfully embodied Christian discipleship. This was the dispute up and running in the Roman network of house churches. So if anything, it's a text about unity, specifically the unifying of the divided network of house churches in Rome. And of course, the dividing line was over ethnic identity, because the weak in Rome imagined that to have some kind of alliance with or to embody um, Jewish ethnic identity gave them a superior place before God, gave them superiority in the church over the strong, if it did not sort of locate Christianity only with them, ruling out the strong. So Paul does indeed describe God's saving work in Christ, but he only does that for the rhetorical and larger pastoral purpose of uniting all the Roman Christians together. They are united in condemnation, and they are united in justification. So this point with the above point, I think are these are critical points uh, to keep in mind, because I find that having taught uh, you know, the New Testament to Christians over the last 20 years, I find that many Christians neglect to take seriously that the New Testament letters are occasional documents. They were occasioned by some pressing need, and those occasions or those situations must be kept in mind when we interpret what the text says. It is, I mean, I know that so many people have noticed this, but it's very common uh, when discussing various issues with Christian people for folks to sort of hop all over the place from text to text, citing this passage from Romans and that one from Ephesians and that one from 1 Corinthians, and then to sort of draw conclusions or make assertions. But Paul only says what he says in those specific places because of his larger goal in that specific letter. And that involves his larger purpose for writing. So whenever we cite a certain text, we have to understand why Paul says what he says. Because if the situation were different, Paul might have said something different. I whenever I sort of had to make this point in class, <clears throat> I would think about a certain situation that I faced with my two sons years ago. Um, I have two sons, Jake and Riley, and uh, they're just two of the most amazing people on the face of the earth. And um, when they were much younger, 
this is probably when Jake was about 11 and Riley may have been eight or nine. Um, I was the coach for a number of years of Riley's Little League baseball team. We won the championship one year. And uh, Jake, his older brother, had absolutely zero interest in sports that involved, you know, team sports, balls, etc. No interest in uh, golf, baseball, basketball, football. Uh, he was always very active, but he, and he remains, a skater. That's what he just got absolutely gripped by. And um, one night as I was putting the boys to bed, uh, Jake leaned over the top bunk, and um, I'll just never forget what he said. He said, um, Dad, do you support me in being a skater? Which is the, that's exactly what he said. That's just the funniest question. Do you support me being a skater? And that was one of those rare moments as a parent when I was sort of alert to what was happening. And what he was trying to get at was, are you cool with me not having, not wanting anything to do with baseball, even though that's what you watch all the time, what you're wrapped up in, you coach Riley's baseball team. I have no interest in it. You know, do you still love me as your son? Do you approve of me? Do you support me? Um, and it was a great opportunity for me to say, um, no, I actually prefer your brother over you. No, I didn't say that. I um, totally just laid it on, laid it on thick, told him how, how much I loved uh, when he you know, learned to do a kickflip the first time. You know, I was there the first time he ever dropped in on a half pipe. Um, all these kind of, you know, I, I, I just pulled out so many specific things about skating, basically the whole catalog of what I knew, which was not big, about skateboarding, and told him how much I just delighted in, in him as my son. Um, and I was thinking about that later. I was thinking about what if Riley was not in the room at that time, say he's in the hallway, and Jake asked me that same question. Like, what if I had responded to Jake wanting to say, you know, wanting to get across to him that I loved him and approved of him as my son. What if I had said, Jake, I don't, I don't give a rip about baseball. Who cares? It's just a dumb game with a bat and a ball and a bunch of guys chasing it around. I mean, I love, I love you. I don't, I don't care about some dumb sport. That would have been appropriate in a sense, because it would have been my opportunity to say the very same thing uh, to Jake, to get across that point that what matters is Jake. He's my son. He's incredible. And I, I love him with an undying love. Um, what if it were the case that I had said that to Jake and Riley overheard me and that sort of cast doubt on, um, on why I would be so involved with his little league team? of why I would sign him up for baseball every year, like I did, even though once in a while he would be like, yeah, I'm done with baseball. Um, that would have cast doubt in Riley's mind and made him wonder, what is my dad being real about, you know, taking me to games, um, minor league baseball games, and, you know, spending all summer watching baseball? What is the deal if he doesn't care about this dumb game? Um, Riley would have heard my words rightly but he would have misunderstood them because he would not have understood the rhetorical situation in which I was communicating. He would not have understood 
that I was trying to send the message to Jake that I love him and that his choice of sports or activities has nothing to do with my connection to him as my son and my feelings for him and my delight in him as my son. That's just an illustration of how it is that when we come to Paul's texts, we've got to understand what he's doing with his words, because we could so easily just sort of lift his words out and say something like, this is clear biblical teaching, and end up getting it wrong because we don't understand the rhetorical situation in which those words are embedded and in which they have meaning. What Paul says means in certain ways, and we can misunderstand them by misconstruing or not rightly reckoning with the rhetorical situation in which they properly mean. So anyway, that obviously has massive implications for so many passages in Romans. And to my mind, many passages in Romans have been misused because they've been lifted out of their embedded contexts. A good illustration of that would be how Romans 7 is often interpreted to uh, depict the unbelievers struggle with sin or the believers battle with sin or something like that. Whereas Paul is getting at something quite different in the flow of his argument. And another obvious example would be um, Romans 20, uh, sorry, Romans 1 verses 26 and 27. And the, the statements that Paul makes there are among the dreaded clobber texts um, that Christians often cite to condemn any sexual identity or any sexual behavior that falls outside the bounds of what is considered traditional marriage or traditional sexuality. But Romans 1, 26 to 27, and other texts along those lines in the New Testament, uh, because many of them are found in letters that are occasional texts, this text and those must be understood within the rhetorical contexts, and that may complicate things. To my mind, that's okay. That is okay. It seems to me that many Christian people have been flippant and glib in making statements about the, the Bible's supposedly clear condemnation of anything outside of traditional sexuality. But the consequences for doing that can be absolutely tragic and awful. Many people who identify as LGBTQ plus um, can be hurt and made to feel excluded from Christian fellowship. And I recommended a couple of months ago, Bridget Eileen Rivera's wonderful book along those lines. Um, but the way I approach Romans 1, 26 and 27 is to recognize that Paul is doing something very strategic and specific in that text. In verses 18 to 32, he's portraying the Gentile descent into idolatry and human degradation in the darkest possible tones. And he's doing so from a Jewish perspective uh, over against the Gentile world in order to inflame the weak in Rome in their, in their judgmental posture over against the strong. And he's doing that only to then turn on them in chapter 2, verse 1, and confront them for their judgmental attitude. And he cites same-gender erotic relations 
as the lowest point of human degradation in order to accomplish that rhetorical purpose. It's part of that strategy. He's operating, as I said, from a Jewish point of view. Um, some Jewish writers and Jewish thinkers would have likewise condemned such practices among the non-Jewish nations. So if Paul is doing that, the question arises in my mind, is it appropriate to cite that passage as a clear example that the Bible condemns same-gender erotic relations? I've gotten a lot of questions along that line. And at this point, I'm not convinced that it is. What concerns me, um, what concerns me greatly is that the church is doing such terrible harm to people who identify as LGBTQ+. And my preference is to be very patient as I approach a text like Romans 1, 26 and 27, and to examine any and all hermeneutical possibilities before drawing any conclusions with any certainty or clarity on the question of whether Paul would, con uh, would condemn same-gender erotic relations. To me, the grave danger is not that I might come to the wrong conclusion regarding same-gender erotic relations. That's not the worst possible thing. For me, the worst possible reality is running afoul of what Jesus has to say in Mark 9, 35 to 50. This is a reality that weighs heavily on my mind for a range of reasons, but not least when it comes to uh, these sorts of conversations. In that passage, and that passage sort of, I think it has to be held together instead of being broken up into sort of paragraphs with the different topics that Jesus is addressing. They're all set together because they all relate to one another. But in that passage, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus, <clears throat> he takes a child. Um, this is a very significant and meaningful set of actions that Jesus does in this episode. He uh, and Mark kind of slows the action down to, to highlight what Jesus does. He takes a child, places the child in the center of the group, and then he puts his arms around the child. And children in the ancient world represented marginalized people. They had no social value. They had no social status whatsoever. They are the marginalized, one of a number of marginalized groups in the Gospel of Mark. And what Jesus does is very significant. He places the marginalized person in the center of the fellowship. And then he identifies himself with the marginalized when he puts his arms around the child. And he says words that are massively significant, that when the church welcomes the marginalized, the church welcomes Jesus and God into its fellowship, which is so massively profound. It's like, it's not that the church has Jesus and God in it, and then can sort of do what it wants with regard to the marginalized. The church is only the church with the presence of God dwelling in it when the marginalized are welcomed, is Jesus's point. And the disciples' impulse is to exclude, which is also seen in verses 38 to 41. And when Jesus says, um, or I should say, and then Jesus says something absolutely terrifying in verses 42 to 50, he says to the disciples that in their desire to exclude and in their tendency toward ministry competition and division with other groups of Jesus followers, 
if they in any way cause any of the marginalized to be scandalized. That is, if they cause uh, those who are vulnerable or weak or marginalized, if they cause them to stumble, to fall away, or to be discouraged from participating in the church, it would be better for them to die the most terrible death imaginable than for them to meet the Lord Jesus when he comes in judgment. What makes God so angry so that he threatens his disciples with the terrors of judgment is, that, is when the marginalized are excluded from the church. That's the big reality that weighs heavily on me. And that is why um, I would far rather exercise great hermeneutical patience with a text like Romans 1, 26 and 27 and to recognize its complexity because if Paul is doing something rhetorically complex in Romans 1, 18 to 32, I'm not so certain that I have a good handle on that text that I'm confident in my interpretation, especially if that means doing harm to people that the church has historically marginalized and mistreated. I don't want to be in a situation on the great and terrible day of judgment where I'll be in such terror that I will be wishing I had died the most awful death imaginable rather than face the wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ because I had done harm to someone with whom Jesus identifies. So for me, recognizing the rhetorical situatedness of those statements, I want to honor the complexity of Romans 1. And I want to take fully into account that Paul's rhetorical purposes must have some effect on how I interpret that passage. Remember that New Testament letters are occasional documents. They are occasional texts. And you've got to understand the situation within which Paul's statements are made. Another big takeaway for me um, when it comes to studying Romans is the portrayal of humans as the glory of God. I think that this is one of the most interesting dynamics that, that is up and running in Romans um, is that salvation is depicted as the restoration of humanity as the glory of God. If you just read through um, Romans in the translation that, that, um, that I supply, because I try to make sure that all these uh, terms are translated rightly, um, but if you go through Romans and just highlight all the glory language and even some of the, and all the image language, although there's less of it than glory language, salvation is depicted as the restoration of humans as the glory of God, which is just so fascinating when you understand what, what, the, what, what humans as the glory of God is all about within the whole flow of scripture. And uh, in the very beginning in Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul uh, portrays, you know, an original situation in which humans were image of God within creation. That is, um, you know, Psalm 8 uh, identifies humanity as the glory of God. They were crowned with glory and honor. That's the same reality as humans being image of God. And as image of God, humans were uh, commissioned to rule over creation, bringing forth creation's flourishing the, the rest of the human creation and the non-human creation. Humans were commissioned 
to oversee the spread of God's flourishing throughout all of creation. And when they did that, they behaved properly as the glory of God. So all of creation is portrayed as God's temple. And within a temple, you have an image that represents the unseen deity. And for God's cosmic temple, the image is humanity. So according to creation, God's creation intentions, when humans were behaving in that way, God was glorified. Um, God is glorified by humans spreading the rule of God and the flourishing order of God throughout all creation. That's how the unseen and transcendent deity is depicted within creation. Um, God's sovereign rule over creation is enacted by humans. So humans are image of God. Humans are glory of God. Uh, as the narrative flow goes in Romans, that uh, humanity exchanged or changed or altered image. And it's not that they started worshiping idols instead of worshiping the one true God. Uh, rather, humans saw themselves as no longer in the image of the unseen, transcendent, ruling uh, creator and king. They now saw themselves as in the image of something else within creation, whether that was an exalted human or an animal or whatever it was, any kind of exalted idea or ideal that humans came up with. And that was a corruption. That was humanity's corruption, and, and that led to all the other corruptions um, that humanity then enacted. And that is the situation that God's work in Christ overturns and reverses and um, recovers. So in Romans 3, 23, uh, I think I mentioned this unfortunate translation when talking about that passage. Uh, Paul does not say that all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as if the glory of God were something to be aimed at. Paul says that all, all have sinned and lack the glory of God, because humans have all um, participated in this reality where we are no longer, excuse me, enacting the reign of God in creation as we were meant to do. And lacking the glory of God is the situation that God reverses. And in God's uh, so God rectifies or transforms humanity in Christ so that now um, God's people boast in the hope of the glory of God, which Paul says in Romans 5. This is what uh, God's people now do. We look forward to that future day um, being, being transformed people, sort of growing into our renewed humanity. Um, God's people look forward to that future day when they will be fully restored as the glory of God. And in that time, that future salvation does not mean uh, getting taken away and brought up to heaven or something like that. That's never the idea. Uh, the, the future full and final salvation looks like humans being image of God, being glory of God, ruling creation on God's behalf. And um, this is what Paul says in Romans 5, that this is what the Roman Christians are destined for. They are destined to rule on behalf of the one true God. So salvation involves restored image. Um, it involves the anticipation of the future restored glory. And um, living that reality now looks like Romans 12, 1 and 2. It looks like true and renewed worship. Um and then the ultimate exhortation in Romans is 15.7, 7, 
where the two groups are called to offer each other hospitality, to welcome one another to the glory of God. That is, when they do that, they are being the glory of God. They are being the fully restored humans that God had originally created humanity to be in anticipation of that full and final restoration in the end. So salvation in Romans is depicted uh, as solving that specific problem that humans lack the glory of God and that humans become the glory of God in Christ in anticipation of the future final transformation. And to me, all of that is so fascinating because the way that I was taught about salvation in my inherited culture of evangelical Christianity, it involved none of that. Being saved meant having Jesus in your heart, had nothing to do with your body, even though Romans is filled with body language. Um, it had nothing to do with restored image. It had everything to do with having Jesus in your heart and having a future in heaven. And there were no implications for bodies, even though the, the problem that salvation was to solve uh, was that humanity was not enacting the rule of God on earth, um, spreading God's restored order of flourishing globally. And in my inherited culture, salvation had no implications for God's uh, for care of God's creation whatsoever when that is the very thing that salvation was supposed to restore. And this is the whole point that Paul makes in Romans 8, that because humans currently, globally, are not being glory of God, they're not being image of God, creation, which needed um, a manager and a, a, um, a caretaker in humanity, um, creation is groaning. And that has effects on God. God is groaning because humanity is not playing its role in caring for God's world. So it, studying Romans for me has just been, it's just baffling to me um, as to how my inherited culture came up with a conception of salvation that had nothing to do with God's priorities in salvation. At least how Paul describes it. I mean, in my inherited culture, there's a great and highly developed allergy towards um, practical moves to sort of spread God's order of flourishing, which would be the proper um, way of embodying God's salvation, spreading God's order of flourishing locally so that we're caring for the poor, looking out for people who are marginalized. Um, among my inherited culture of white evangelicalism, uh, that is the subgroup in American culture that is most resistant to sane and compassionate immigration policies that look out for people who are traumatized and looking for safety. It's, um, and I don't blame the people that inhabit that culture. It's just interesting to me that the ideology that sort of uh, shapes the imaginations of my inherited culture of evangelicalism, that ideology sort of runs against the grain of how Paul portrays salvation, and it runs against the grain of the, the practical mode of life that is the, the embodiment of God's salvation in so many ways and at point after point. And so for me, over the last um, 17 years or so, since I've been studying Romans intently, um, that has just, it's come home to me 
how Paul portrays this rich and robust work of salvation that entails the church taking on this um, sort of multifaceted and full range, this, this whole mode of life. Um, and, and it's a mode of life that in evangelical context, when I've talked about it, um, I get reactions like, well, that sounds liberal. Or you sound like a Democrat, which is baffling. Um, except um, I do know where those kind of comments are coming from because I was trained in that ideology and I was trained in those speech patterns and all the rest. It's just a tragic misreading of Paul's theology as a whole and a tragic misreading of Romans. So in Romans, Paul portrays salvation as the restoration of humanity to being the glory of God. The fourth point um, has to do with justification as rectification. That is justification as transformation. Um, the way that I was taught about justification mostly involved a way of thinking about justification that came from kind of a systematic theological vision of it. And uh, justification is sort of the, the thing that happens to people at conversion where they are um, legally set right with God in some kind of heavenly courtroom. <clears throat> On the heavenly books, there is nothing for all of us except condemnation. And uh, at salvation, we are justified. That is, our sin becomes Christ, sort of imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us so that we are now justified. We're forgiven and declared righteous. Um, that's just not how justification is portrayed in Romans. It's not a declaration in heaven. It is transformative, which is why I've talked about I've tried to use as much as possible terminology like rectification or to make righteous uh, or to set right. Justification is portrayed as transformation. In Romans 3, uh, or I should say in Romans as a whole, the problem is that humans are characterized by adikia, that dick word group, uh, D-I-K in sort of uh, English transliteration. And what, what happens at, so adikia is injustice or unrighteousness. So it's, and if you look at the list of things that are adikia at the end of Romans 1, they are all behaviors and sort of attributes of humans. They're not sort of, um, I don't know, legal fictions in heaven. They are realities. They're, they're modes of conduct and behaviors that humans enact on one another. And... That's a problem. And what God does when he makes righteous or he uh, dikaiadzos, the same word group, he re reverses that condition and he transforms humans through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is through the liberation that is in Christ Jesus. So the problem in, in, uh, that justification solves is a problem whereby humanity is all wrapped up in adikia injustice and unrighteousness. In the way that Paul portrays that in Romans, uh, it's that humans are under bondage to the cosmic power of sin. They're in a, the cosmic realm that is enslaved creation. And what God does is he liberates uh, his people from that enslaved condition and brings them into this new cosmic space called Christ or in Christ or uh, the gift or in this grace. 
And that is an act of liberation, or it's an act of transformation, of changing people from adikia to dikaiosune, righteousness or justice, God's justice. So justification is transformation, and it is transformation to resurrection life, because in that renewed and new cosmic space, that is the cosmic space upheld by God's resurrecting work in Christ, and it's filled with resurrection life. So um, throughout Romans, uh, uh, I'm trying to think about where that is, uh, end of Romans 4, end of Romans 5, I believe, uh, where, sorry, Romans 4, where Paul ties justification directly to resurrection, that that transformation into resurrection existence is what justification is all about. It has to do with cosmic realm transfer and um, transformation into a new cosmic reality. Um, so anyway, I've, tr I've tried to portray that as I've talked about uh, justification, trying to talk about it with regard to rectification language, because I think that's the best way to talk about it, to make right or to rectify a situation. And that does not involve merely our legal status in heaven. It involves a transformed cosmic reality here on earth. And related to that, a fifth point is that Paul's theology or Paul theologizes about the situation faced by the Roman network of house churches <clears throat> in terms of these two cosmic realms uh, and the new location of the Roman Christians in a different cosmic realm. So cosmic realm transfer is a massive, massive, massively important way of coming to grips with how Paul does theology, how he pastorally does his theology or how he theologizes pastorally or how he pastors theologically. That cosmic vision shapes everything. And that's especially seen in Romans 5 to 8, um, where he diagnoses the problem up and running in the Roman network of house churches as people who have been liberated into renewed cosmic space, but are taking action in their church situation. They're taking action sort of in corrupted cosmic space. They're sort of drawing on the resources that are only found in corrupt cosmic space to sort of to try to produce a community that exists in renewed cosmic space, which is completely backwards. That is no way to accomplish or to bring about any new creation fruit. And um, just to say there are endless implications uh, of this reality for um, for new creation community. I think this is actually one of the most practical um, realities in Paul, that the church inhabits renewed cosmic space, and the church the church's task is to identify <clears throat> the range of behaviors that it it inherits as a result of being liberated from enslaved cosmic space. What are all the habits of mind? and all the habits of thought, and all the, the habituated relational practices, all our behaviors as community members. What, are, what have we brought with us from our enslavement? And we identify those as an effort to get rid of them, to no longer behave in those ways, and to learn the new practices that are appropriate for being in renewed cosmic space. There are new habits of mind. 
um, new hab new habituated um, practical behaviors that we need to start learning. Like um, one group in the Roman network of house churches sees itself as better than the other group and wants to sort of have the privilege and prerogative of saying how community life should go. And that group over there doesn't get to say, we get to say, because we're better. We're, we're godly, you're ungodly. We're righteous, you're unrighteous. Well, that's a way of behaving in enslaved cosmic space that only furthers cosmic enslavement, bringing about degradation and death. And there are new habits of mind that the Roman network of house churches has to sort of take up and develop. And they have to do with seeing one another as siblings. We're all the same. We all existed together in condemnation. We all exist together in salvation. And God has given us to one another so that none of us um, have an identity that is superior to others. We're all, we all, we have a common boast. We have a, a common identity that we celebrate. We belong to one another. We've been baptized into the death of Christ. We are now inhabiting the life of Christ. And we are baptized sort of into this relation of belonging to one another um, so that our new task involves the practices of hospitality and warm fellowship. And what does that look like? This is the whole reality that Paul has in mind when he says things like, put on Christ, like this new reality that you've been brought into. Try it on like a new shirt. Move around in it and learn its practices, like learning to confess sin to one another, learning to forgive, learning how to reconcile, learning how to see that person over there who belongs to that other group as my sister and my brother. We belong to one another. We might be we might have differences ethnically. We might have differences as far as how um, we live our lives, different calendar systems and food habits and all the rest, but we are intimately identified with one another. Um, yeah, so many implications of this for living in the new cosmic reality. Practically, practically, I realize that that's a new frame um, and that we often don't talk about cosmic realities or we talk about cosmic and spiritual realities in all the wrong ways that have to do with spectacular spiritual warfare or something like that. Um, but thinking along with Paul, to my mind, has um, can reshape how we see ourselves, how we see one another, and how we see the cosmic dynamics that are up and running in community life when we either pick up practices um, and act in certain ways in community life that come from uh, cosmic enslavement, or on the other hand, when we pick up practices and behave in ways in community life that flow from new creation life. All of these realities are crucial for understanding how to be the church. Um, I think just a brief point, uh, well, I'll skip that. I kind of already touched on that. I think one of the most interesting things about Romans, at least for me and what I've been trying to learn a lot more about over the last 15 years or so, um, and an issue which is increasingly relevant every day. It's been relevant for hundreds of years, but we've ignored it. Um, interestingly, Romans, Romans scholars here and there pick it up. And what I'm trying to get at is because the dividing line among the two groups in Romans 
has to do with ethnicity, there are massive implications here for thinking about race and our common life in a culture that has been um, profoundly racialized. So much to say about this. Um, huge implications for how we identify ourselves and how we live into the reality of our Christian identity. That is how we understand ourselves, how we understand others, how we understand our relation to others. Um, what Paul is trying to do with the two groups that have as a dividing line, ethnic identity, he's trying to help them understand that they belong to one another and that their most hopeful way forward is in mutual hospitality. When they welcome one another, when they warm, when they enjoy warm hospitality with one another and um, in such a way that it's mutual. And to me, this has so many implications for how we imagine, well, first of all, how we imagine the problem that is race, the problem that is a racialized culture, and it has huge implications for how we imagine solutions to the problems created by the reality of race and the problems created by a racialized culture. And um, what I mean is that race is a... Um, it's a social construct that was imposed on American culture and then now globalized that was invented to justify oppression, the oppression of African um, people brought to America as enslaved people. Race was invented as a construct to justify that and to explain it and to sort of scientifically justify it. And just because it's a social construct doesn't mean it has absolute real world implications and realities. And that reality is here. It's among us. And uh, I think Romans is a massive resource for understanding that and um, for understanding it and then understanding how to face it and deal with it. And I think that this help is, is helpful because the way that, for example, I, as a white person, a middle-class white person have been raised and trained to think, um, is to, once I see the problem in those terms, my imagination was shaped in such a way that I will see solutions still in terms of whiteness. For example, I was part of a discussion just yesterday about race and the church using, um, oh, I know I forget her name, the book called The Church Cracked Open, um, which is a Brilliant book, just brilliant. The Church Cracked Open. We were discussing this book, and I noticed that in many ways, uh, white imaginations run immediately towards helping others. And I think that that, uh, you know, we have so much, we need to help. We need to help others. On one hand, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help other people. I get that. But I was wondering to what extent that sentiment or that immediate move mentally flows from sort of a white savior complex. I was wondering to what extent that's paternalistic, which again, like I said, flows from whiteness. It flows from racialized imaginations about what black Christians need or what black people need. They are in need. We have to help them. And that sort of sentiment is the product of a racialized culture. Paul doesn't make that move. 
for Paul, the solution to an ethnically uh, divided set of communities is mutuality, partnership, where we embody the reality that we are siblings. White people, because whiteness has shaped our imaginations, we will always see ourselves in paternalistic terms. We are the ones with resources. You are the ones who have needs. Hey, y'all, don't worry. The white men have showed up. We're here to solve it. We're here to help. Um, again, what Paul envisions is hospitality and mutual welcome. Mutual welcome. Welcome one another. He doesn't tell one group, you're the ones who get it. You need to welcome them. The two groups need to take up a set of practices that involve partnership and mutuality. Um, along this line, I think that throughout Romans and um, Galatians as well, because in those two letters, um, that's the greatest occurrence of the expression works of the law. I think that the way that Paul portrays works of the law and the way that he speaks about it in Romans has massive implications for discerning just how whiteness affects how we conceive of being Christian. What I mean is, is this, the division in the Roman network of house churches is due to one group presuming that a Jewish ethnic identity, if they, you know, they've taken one on, and their presumption is that a Jewish identity gives them a place of superiority over the other group. And if you think about it, in a sense, there's good reason for them to think that. After all, the people of God, the people of the God of Israel, have been Jewish for a long time. But Paul tells the Roman Christians that works of the law, that is, that's an expression whereby Paul means an identity shaped by Torah practices, works of the law is neither here nor there when it comes to justification. Works of the law or existence as a Jewish person, it means nothing when it comes to membership in the people of God. Jews and Greeks are both welcome as full members of God's people. And boasting in an identity determined by Torah is ruled out by the manner in which God saves because rectification is by faith in Christ and that by itself, without any reference to Jewish identity. Because of that, the Jews and the Greeks have a common boast. That is, they, they have a common identity. They're known by the same badge. They're known by the same public um, badge. They, they're the same people. They belong to one another. I think that there's great scope here in this, in the way that Paul goes about these discussions to discern the manner in which Christian identity has actually been corrupted by whiteness, like in our day. And by whiteness, what I'm referring to is, is the lens that has descended upon the world in the wake of European colonization and in the wake of the European imperial projects over the last 700 years. That, that lens is one that we've all inherited and we've all been trained to see through it as we look at ourselves and as we look at other people. We've been trained to see everybody in relation to whiteness. White people are at the center. We are the standard. White people are the, the standard. You know, the white male is really the standard. And women and all non-white people are sort of pushed to the margins. They stand at a remove from whiteness. They're at the edges. And they, they have their value or their valuation 
only in relation to the standard that is whiteness. This is um, this is the product of the European colonial project, where all of this was made explicit. And the lens of whiteness <clears throat> has loads of ideological biases that attend it, that come along with it, so that we're all taught uh, to see white people, white spaces, white institutions, white politics, white politicians, um, white male judges, um, to make a relevant reference. We're taught to see all of that as superior to non-white people, non-white spaces, non-white institutions, non-white politics, non-white politicians, and non-white Supreme Court justices. And as Willie Jennings talks about in his absolutely masterful book, The Christian Imagination, all of that has profoundly affected global Christianity and Christian theology. The Christian West sees itself as superior to Christianities that are found in other parts of the world. And white churches here in America, with all of our resources and power and influence, we imagine that we are the standard of what Christianity ought to be. And even though we might say, theologically, we're all the same, we all, we all have equal status before God, the ground is level at the foot of the cross or whatever, we might say that, but whiteness has affected our imaginations and our practices. It has affected our conception and practice of Christian discipleship. And I'm talking about the allocation of resources, the people to whom we listen, the people who are lifted up as authoritative voices, the kinds of people we imagine as pastors and church leaders and so many other dynamics as well. And that's to say nothing of gender and ability or disability. So when Paul sees the dispute in the Roman network of house churches and he discerns beneath that, an arrogance on the part of the weak because of assumptions about Jewish identity, I think that Paul's theological vision, Paul's theological discernment is a great resource for coming to grips with how whiteness has distorted and corrupted our imaginations with regard to Christian discipleship. And I think that Paul can be a great resource here for developing language for identifying the underlying causes of the global fracture of the church. And I'm thinking here of the contemporary scene, and certainly this is the case in America, where we have white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, Chinese churches, Korean churches, Armenian churches, etc. For Paul, in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, throughout his letters, God is glorified and the gospel is at work when multi-ethnic communities gather in the name of Jesus and celebrate together warm hospitality as one unified body. So what does it say about our contemporary churches when we gather only as middle-class white communities? Or when our ethnic churches don't enjoy regular and routine gatherings to celebrate our common identity as siblings gathered into the one family of God. Seems to me that something is profoundly wrong with the situation. And for Paul, that goes to the very heart of the gospel. By the way, this isn't something that has a quick fix. This corrupt cultural condition took at least 700 years to develop, so it's not going to change overnight. 
But in the middle of this larger cultural conversation, all I'm saying is Romans is a richly robust resource for addressing it. I mean, this is what the whole freaking letter is about. That is exactly the broken situation that Paul is addressing in this letter. I can't help but just say that it's, if it weren't so tragic, it'd be comic. But it is certainly a tragic situation that Romans is probably the most significant text in the Bible for the development of Christian theology in the West. And it's amazing to me that generation after generation of people who study Romans so closely um, participate without comment in this broken and racialized and thoroughly corrupt situation. Or in our contemporary, uh, our contemporary scene, people can study Romans so closely and then bristle when discussions of race come up. Seems to me that people who study Romans intensely ought to be the ones who learn to speak about race and the corruptions of a, of a racialized culture most skillfully. So just to say, I don't think that we need to accept um, sort of culture-bound, that is, liberal democratic analyses of race and a racialized culture. I think we can learn from them. Um, there are, well, let me just say, um, <clears throat> there are rich resources for thinking about race and a racialized culture that are out there. Um, I think that Christians ought to begin the project of actually learning from them. Um, just to say that from a Christian perspective, Paul has his own way of seeing that, uh, that cuts off the problems that arise immediately from paternalism. So, and th these resources in Romans, it seems to me, have been seldom developed and cultivated. They have in some ways and at some points. Uh, Willie Jennings in his book, The Christian Imagination, talks about uh, Bishop Colenso, who wrote a commentary on Romans and was part of the European colonial experience as a missionary teaching um, people in colonized situations. And he got to Romans and was like, uh, Paul is talking about this situation and it's corrupt. It's bad. We have to talk about it. So there are people who have studied Romans within an imperial context um, of racialized injustice, and they have seen Paul as a resource. More recently, um, Doug Herring in his book on ju uh, justice in Romans and reading Romans, uh, the discussions there about justification in terms of God's justice would be another resource. Also, Matt Crossman's brilliant and brain um, sort of torturing book. It was just people with a small brain like like I've got sort of get overwhelmed by brilliant books. But Matt Crossman's book, um, The Cosmic Tyrant, uh, about sin as a cosmic power, and he goes into discussions of race. Uh, these are there are resources out there who get it and who see it and can talk about it. And certainly in my study of Romans and in, in the conversations that I've been a part of, I see a direct tie between everything that Paul has to say and all of these discussions about race, which makes me 
a glad participant in them and in no way resistant because I'm confident that uh, Christian discipleship provides rich resources um, for participating well and for being a good neighbor as we talk about how we can be even better neighbors. Well, obviously there are so many more things that can be said about Romans, should be said about Romans, uh, but this season has been fun to think again through this awesome, challenging letter. And again, I'm grateful for all the engagement that I've enjoyed by way of email. Uh, so where are things headed in season four? No idea. We'll see where it goes. As I said, I'm taking a few weeks off. Going to go away and dream it all up again. A reference that Tim Stafford will understand and maybe he'll regard as sacrilege. For now, I'm going to enjoy the rest of this bright, sunny afternoon and hang out with the kittens. As ever, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. <laughs>